Hello and welcome to the OT Podcast Club podcast. For this group, we listen to the 99% Invisible podcast episode, Where Do We Go From Here? number 412. These are edited highlights of our conversation inspired by this episode about transgender and non-binary experiences of using public bathrooms, the history of public bathrooms, and modern approaches to inclusive universal design. There we go. Toilets. Go. <laughs> Quiet. Quiet. I, when I listened to it, I thought, do you know what? I wish I had thought about this deeper before because I just haven't. Um, I know what to have done. So, so for me, I kind of, I guess I had a bit of a penny drop moment when I listened to it. I was like, yeah, I know. And, and maybe it's because I'm quite a kind of an accepting person anyway and all the rest of it. But, but actually it needs to be talked about, particularly for public spaces, you know, because I think, you know, your own homes, it's, you know, people do whatever they want to, don't they? But um, that's the thing. Who at their home has multiple separate toilets yeah. for exactly? Yeah. I have a bathroom the kids use that I don't go in very often. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I think one thing, just listening, it was the only thing that sort of struck me right at the beginning and it made me not cross about my profession, but it, what is it with OT? We spend all our time trying to work out how people can get on and off the toilet. But actually, all this stuff going on, all this rubbish going on uh, through social media around transphobia and some of the stuff that's been put out there. Why aren't we battling for people to be able to get in and out of toilets? You know, why isn't why aren't we all over this as a profession? It, it, we're obsessed with toilets. We kind of, it, it's everything. How do you get on and off the toilet? Is our is our starting point with with everybody? So why not in and out of the toilet? I. I it may be quite it may be cross for me that I hadn't made that connection that this was this was part of my profession as well and part of my focus but that was yeah that was my main bit from it really I think that's the thing if you've never experienced that or never known anybody being close to anybody that's experienced it why would you think that people would have a problem with getting into a toilet or being in a toilet mm. um and I think even that, even that, from a personal perspective, I, I, I have, like, I get it, but I, I hadn't even transferred that into that. Why is, why is a profession, I mean, it's like, why isn't ARCOT going, transphobia is wrong, we need to have safe spaces for everybody, this is an absolute identity issue. Why aren't we? And, and, okay, I know we are getting there, I know it, it is it is starting, but, it, but it's frustrating. I think that's interesting, actually, what you said there about like ORCOT and, you know, like or the profession, because um, I really think uh, Sandy hit the nail on the head when they were describing, first of all, hold, holding it all day, which to me is like, I just wouldn't be able to leave the house. But but Sandy said um, they restrict their movements, they restrict their activities. Uh, Sandy doesn't go to the gym anymore, doesn't like to travel or go to the airport, basically. And and then later kind of came back to that idea of the calculus of danger as well. So not only like literally being able to go go into the toilet, but then also if if and when they don't go to the toilet, that there is this danger as well. So like that's the very essence of OT is like that that's this person is having to restrict their activities because they can't basically go out and about for the day if you like <laughs> and and also so for, from holding it and also then because 
it's not accessible to them. So it's so OT. And that's what it really struck me when I listened to it. I mean, that's only in the first you know, minute or two that Sandy talks about that. But it's, it's, it's not just about going to the toilet. It's about that whole participation in life and feeling, mm. feeling OK about going out and just doing all the things you want to do. Exactly. And I think that's where we intersect with it as well. If you like with our clients, our patients, where we know if there isn't accessible toilets, you know, more traditional, if you like accessible toilets, we know from our own clients, oh, well, I can't go there. I can't go there. Can't get into that building. Mm -hmm. But this is the exact same thing. But as you say, it's almost an invisible thing as well, James, if you're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. And it is totally that aspect that OT has historically thought about fixing the environment and modifying the environment but actually we I would say probably as a profession we over focus on the physical environment and not think about the social environment which I think this touches on um, and also I don't think we do have enough voice into being inclusive by design that whole nature around like, why aren't we a bigger voice in the planning and designing of buildings or the planning and designing of this and all that, like those principles of being inclusive by design, not going, oh, let's adapt that because the world doesn't work for you. But can we not start making the world work for lots of different people who are excluded by design? I think, like Fiona, when you say you're angry, I think I, I totally get that because it is, it's that expanding your like idea of you know ot and what we're allowed to do but i i think the i think i had like a brilliant lecture in college and she was very um like quite radical i would say she was definitely kind of like uh trained in the kind of 60s 70s i think in ireland was like very i always remember like did things her own way and we used to always have these tensions with her because she would have these like amazing kind of ideological principles of what OT is and how to support participation and then we would all head off on our placements and like she used to always talk about her days working in community OT and primary care OT and she has amazing stories of going to buy condoms for people wheelchair users because they were legal in Ireland and like all these kind of things and then you would go out on your primary care placement and you would just be in a equipment prescription kind of service and you wouldn't have any of the freedom or the support to do any of these radical interventions that you could see maybe needed to be done you know um and I remember that was such a tension and a frustration kind of as uh, when we were students with her it reminds me of that you know is that like it's very hard in a lot of our roles to be able and supported to deliver let's say interventions around the social or cultural environments when yeah maybe a lot of our services are set up to meet more traditional needs like physical uh, the physical environment so I agree with both your points Ruth and, and Fiona I um, think that's such a good point because it's like we know like we do let's say if you go PEO person environment occupation but like <laughs> we're supposed to be changing the environment as well and what we're actually probably a lot of us doing is changing at one toilet at a time as needed yeah. <laughs> rather than Actually, as you said, Ruth, being involved in the planning and the design, which would make a lot more sense. A bit more efficient use of time. But it's also like even, you know, with PO or, or MO and things like that, there's like physical environments uh, and then all the other environments kind of, you know, it, it even is kind of just the others are often lumped in together, kind of like social, cultural, political, legal, whatever, institutional. And they're kind of, I always feel lacking maybe the same nuance and the same attention that, yeah, the physical environments gets.
I found that today for the first time that apparently the PEA model has the natural environment in there as well. Oh. Yeah, I hadn't realized I didn't know that. But that was that was very useful for what I was doing today. But yeah, we don't. We focus it in on the specific actual not not environment, but actual piece of equipment in that environment in front of us. That's the bit we focus on. And the change we make to that one toilet at a time as a time is usually temporary as well. It can usually be fixed by the equipment being taken away. So it, it's a, a short change to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and easy. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's easy. Oh, you, you're struggling to get on and off the toilet. Oh, we can solve that. Yeah. That's, that's dead easy. Straight off the shelf. There you go. Measure it up. Right height. Mm. Job done. And you can Actually, move on where the other issues are more complex and they need more thought. And as you say, you need to be involved at the beginning of the design stage and things like that. Yeah. So you can't just go in and change what's already there. You need to start from the beginning. Even that thing, though, with big heaps about public toilets, it's just the fact that we have a sign on the door that makes it difficult. We have a sign that says this one is for this. So if you don't, you know, you have to decide. You have to make a, a two-way decision off you go. It, it almost feels like all we need to do is take the signs off and just have that. It was that someone said that you don't need a, a person in a skirt and a man with trousers or a person with trousers. You just need a picture of a toilet. So this is what is in here. It is a toilet. You know what to do. So actually, maybe that environmental thing is, or the bigger thing, is actually much easier societally than we're allowing it to be. Maybe it's becoming... It's being seen as a more complicated issue than it is. There was a thing that went round. I think it was University of Bristol or UE um, Students Union. What should you do if you're in a toilet, a public toilet, and you don't know someone's gender? Don't worry about it. They know better than you do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly that. Yeah, go to the toilet and wash your hands. That's exactly. Make, make sure you wash your hands. hands. Anything goes, just wash your hands. Yeah, <laughs> that's like the kind of level, though, that I think that you should be intervening at, you know, or that there should be these maybe campaigns around, whereas I think they're, you know, we always maybe put the onus on the on the individual themselves, you know, and on the trans person about choosing the bathroom that's safe for them and, and you know, making correct choices and being aware of safety and things when, yeah, really, it's it's those kind of like, I'm not going to say simple because I'm sure they are complex, but, you know, yeah. trying to target like this is everyone's this is not necessarily the trans people's responsibility this is everyone's, it's everyone's. This is public spaces yeah. responsibility there's a social education piece there isn't there around exactly. that because there were unisex toilets at uni mm-hmm. and i frequently used them mostly if i'm honest because they had a shorter queue <laughs> but i always used them but a lot of people wouldn't go in them so I think that whole, there's a bigger social education piece around that to actually encourage people to just, these are just toilets. It doesn't was matter. Whether was it only because there was still a choice and there were still single sex traditional toilets? Because if you think, I mean, if you listen to the podcast, it talks about examples, say on aeroplanes. I mean, none of us have ever been on an aeroplane, have we, where there's been male and female toilets? No. And does anyone, is anyone bothered? I don't know whether some people just hold it for longer. Um, but you know, I've been on long haul flights and I haven't seen anyone kicking off about it. I think that's like what I loved about the episode is when they, you know, bring in the racial aspect of things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's exactly that sentence that you said, James, about who deciding who gets to participate in, in public life. And like, you know, it's probably hard for any of us to yeah, imagine racially segregated toilets. But we now have the privilege of being able to look back on that and being like, God, how wrong they got it. Um, whereas I think, yeah, exactly, we're, we're so uh, brought up and the gender division, let's say, of, of restrooms and toilets is so ingrained in us that you can be open to it. But a lot of people, yeah, I think still think 
oh no, it has to be this way for a certain reason, you know, or they or they feel um, uncomfortable without challenging it. And I think using that argument of like, well, would you agree with segregation along any other lines, you know? I think that will kind of highlight to people like, oh yeah, why are we doing mm. this? You know? And yeah, we share them in public other places all the time. I thought it was interesting. Sorry. Yeah, for people that haven't listened to the podcast, because it, it kind of talked about the history of segregation of men and women in society, which was, it was quite a kind of a nice sort of set in the context. So it, it kind of went back right to sort of the 1880s or even before that, where basically women's place was in the home, wasn't it? And it was only when women started going out to work and getting involved in, in politics and those sorts of things they talked about. So I thought, oh, hang on, we better create some nice environments for them, um, for them to go in and sit in and be in because that are segregated not just toilets you know dining rooms and other places because they can't be contaminated by these these awful men and their sort of violent attitudes and ways and i thought the history and the context was fascinating too and i loved the bit where they talked about understanding that it was actually coded in the law and the legal responsibility for public buildings and that they've changed that because there's so many drivers that have to happen for change isn't there and if it's coded in the law, then, you know, like you're just going to hit a brick wall. So I loved the fact that they did think about the history and think about very strategically what almost were steps that needed to be taken to make a possibility of change. Mm-hmm. And it was very actually multidisciplinary also in nature, which totally. is nice. It would be lovely yeah, if something like OT was at the table as well. But it was amazing that they kind of had, you know, like a academic, like a more sociologically informed person, maybe an architect, a legal framework, a building regs framework, you know, having that, yeah, multidisciplinary. Yeah, I like I liked how, how they used this sort of term. It was like an Avengers. Um, yeah. And that's quite a public health focus, isn't it? It's that whole prevention and being upstream and just trying to make mm-hmm. something right for a whole population rather yeah. than focusing on the impacts of when it's not right and it's causing problems yeah and I think that's um that more gender neutral or you know be it the stalled thing or even single things whatever it's elegant so it doesn't matter what anyone thinks about trans people doesn't matter if you don't think disabled people should be accommodated this design solves the problem so if you like ideologies or anything doesn't come into it this new design or you know improved design just mm-hmm. is a better design full stop mm-hmm. um, and again that sort of really brought it back to universal design for me so obviously I work at a university so we look a lot at universal design for the curriculum or even for the college I suppose as a whole but like a lot of it comes from the disability needs if you like but of course the whole idea of universal design is that it's for everyone Mm. Um, and why should it come from disabled people to have to push all the time and it's the same with this like and that's why it was nice as you said that there was like the Avengers kind of (laughs) MDT like it's for everyone this is important to everyone even if you don't know it's important to you or not there should be better bathrooms for everyone Mm. Um, I think people really overlook that bathrooms are really <laughs> coded and really fraught for lots of people. Um, I am dyspraxic and a lot of times if the stall is too narrow, it's just like it's, you know, <laughs> it's like contortionism, you know, going on. Like I just can't cope. And 
that's just me. Like I'm able to go into the toilet and I don't have to worry about who will see me going in or will anyone say anything. And so adding so many extra layers of complexity for other people means that it's not well designed. I was I was thinking similarly because at one point in the podcast, I kind of went through other scenarios where people go in and use, you know, restrooms, bathroom facilities or whatever. And they talked about um, other, other kind of, you know, people maybe have got a UTI or medical care and they talked about dads with children. And that kind of resonated with me going back to what, maybe 15 years ago when I was having to go and change an nappy. And, you know, I'd hope that there would be changing benches in men's toilets. You'd go in and you think, oh, no, there isn't one. It's like, OK, well, I'll have to go and change a somehow else. No, knowing full well that in the ladies, there's a, there's a lovely changing bench. So it's kind of in relation to that, isn't it, Susan, as well? It's like some of those some of those other reasons why people need or might want to use those kinds of public facilities. Yeah, toilets, toilets are just poorly designed. So yeah, let's yeah. all yeah. think about it better and improve us. Yeah. And, and also then, having different designs within the same set of toilets because, you know, there actually isn't a design of toilet that meets everybody's needs because, you know, people transfer in different directions. Some people probably want a nice little snug toilet so they're not, like, scared <laughs> or I don't know. But, you know, every, everyone's needs are different. There are tall people, there are short people. Um, there are people who need a step to climb up to the toilet. Like, you know, it, have just having that concept that people are so infinitely different that kind of you need the infinitely different toilets yeah but then it, it's that people are infinitely different as long as they ascribe to this gender or this gender you can yeah. be as infinitely different as you like as long as you fit the binary as long as you're in a skirt or in your trash but the difficulty is then that because we have it like that it allows people to use that setting as a uh, an excuse for beliefs and views that should be given as little airtime as possible and it allows that to become I don't know like the arena for it they talked Sorry. about it in the podcast as almost being that the toilet has been a battleground in other contexts didn't it yeah and and I thought that was a good way of viewing it actually that it shouldn't be that that's a battleground but the reality is it probably is yeah and you know like listening to this I'm just thinking we've like in other contexts where we've discussed groups that are marginalised, you just go, okay, so you can understand the layers of privilege that there are over, if you can just rock up and go to the loo and not think about it, that's completely different to someone else who doesn't get those experiences. But yet, as with so many other privileges, you almost need your blinkers ripped off to realise you got it. Mm. Yeah, right. I tried to listen to it in like two mindsets. So I listened to it as me, as an OT, and then I tried to listen to it, as it were, with a kind of a just a general public lens on it. And I thought I can, I can totally see why my view is massively different to potentially other people's who just wouldn't even grasp the concept that people would be concerned <coughs> about going into a toilet. Definitely. And I think sometimes the positive changes that are coming about um, are maybe not even based on exactly like the like a gender minorities um, lobbying or a gender minorities changes. So one um, example I can think of is like a, a a client I used to work with stopped swimming because even though it was like one of their biggest hobbies and they're a very valued occupation for them, they stopped swimming because of the discomfort that they experience going to changing rooms and the anxiety even about thinking about which to go to. 
And eventually we started looking around different leisure clubs and different like swimming facilities and looking for ones that had more like changing villages where they, you have the kind of family changing zones where like, yeah, you and your kid can easily be in this kind of uh, cabin and get people changed. And this ended up really working for that client. They were able to then join that place, go swimming there again. And it was like a really nice kind of solution but I was really conscious at the time that like you know that what ended up being like driving that solution was like yeah probably more family focused you know and maybe parenting focused and was nothing to do with actually degendering kind of spaces you know um and I think that's quite sad you know as to like what that I don't know if I'd say that it's happened easily but I get the sense that those kind of things drive change maybe easier than yeah what we're talking about here tonight you know doing it on on gender grounds Um, there was, but there was an example, wasn't there, on the podcast? There was a couple, and they'd gone. I think they'd gone to the swimming pool and they wanted to go and use the sauna and stuff afterwards. And they had to decide which changing rooms were they to use. Was it the male or the female changing rooms? As OTs, we, it, it's about being mindful that it affects more than kind of the obvious. Like you'd go for the s- swimming would be an obvious um, occupation that it would affect, and sports and um, you know changing facilities are often gendered, aren't they? But it's uh, relating back to the toilets. It's far more than that. It's it might be going to the pub and choosing not to drink or choosing not to stay out because the bladder can only last that long. It might be not going to a gig because not being able to go to the toilet and the ripple effects on lots of different occupations. And then particularly so like we've talked previously about the the prevalence of um, depression and anxiety in trans and non-binary people. And so if you think people who are depressed or experiencing anxiety isolate themselves and as OTs we come in and go okay we need to get you engaged in a bit more we need to get you a bit but if we're not aware of what trans and non-binary people experience then that's a blinker to a potential barrier for leaving the house. I was listening to I think it was Niall you were talking about where they've like that actually the family focus might have changed driven some of the changes that have happened in changing rooms um but that actually there are more people that benefit from that than just families and it really made me think of I you know like I do make weird analogies in my head so stick with me the bit in the film that's about um like the anti-slavery thing where he's tried and tried and tried to get the slavery laws changed and it fails every time. And then they go in on a sugar tax and they change the law over the sugar tax. And because they have changed that, the ripple effect of it is that it makes slavery unviable and it brings about that change. Mm. And I think, like, I think we should be utterly able and willing to, to fight for this, for the rights of trans people and to name it for what it is, an honest label. But I also think there's something about being pragmatic and just supporting change for any reason if it's beneficial to a whole as well and being able to to make use of the best argument for that time, that place, that institution, what you think is just going to have the most likelihood of making a difference um yeah that's what it made me think of there is something in that is it's about looking for those the word whether it's chinks in the armor but looking for those being opportunistic about those opportunities to create change because 
it's a bit like we talked about actually if you change something for for one whether it's families or another group of people actually it's like the likelihood is whatever you do that's going to make something more universally able to be accessed used whatever it is then it's going to benefit a wider range of people and and people that probably you've never really thought about you know the, the more universal anything is isn't it it's it's going to just reduce break down break through whatever barriers are, are, are in place and in a divergence of models, oh. Susan has already done PEO for me tonight, so I'm going to go for a different model because I've thought of something else. Um, I'm thinking cower this evening. That aspect of where you change something small and it creates a difference in the flow and it makes a difference to the whole of the river and the space. I think it's um, fine I, to look for those chinks and kind of go with what makes a change and what makes things more universal as long as you've also still got your eye on the other side and you're positively trying to affect that social change that educates the wider public and helps to change those perceptions and views I think it's fine to take that almost easy win as it were and and, and get in there and get the changes made but unless you do that in parallel with a yeah. social education you're not you're still not necessarily solving the problem no. And I think that's a small change as well in itself, though, isn't it? Because um, just carrying on the conversations has a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The conversation is nothing. It's a throwaway comment, perhaps, but actually that impacts. Yeah. Which reminds me, if you go back a well, year, year, year and a bit ago now, wasn't it? It was the College of Occupational Therapists, um, you know, the Occupational Therapy Day slogan, wasn't it? Small change, big impact. And it actually that kind of struck a chord with me. I was I was like, oh, I'm going to get into this. So I, you know, I submitted one of my case studies. I was like, small change, big impact. But it's true. You can you can stop. It is those ripple effects. And if there's enough people that are kind of making those ripples, and that's when you start to see those sorts of changes. That when I was listening to the podcast as well, I don't know if anyone's watched the recent um, the Channel Four. It's a sin. Oh, I've not watched. Yeah. That. Uh, I won't I won't give you any spoilers but there were some things there that resonated with me and it's it was just again some of those societal attitudes of change and they they referenced during the podcast when when AIDS came along that actually there was that was another reason for people to be kind of afraid of the whole public toilet space and and those are the sorts of things that were kind of drawn out through through that bit of drama as well I thought it was really powerful it was brilliant. You look back and you think, really? Do people really think that? Well, fear is an They still do, unfortunately. That's Yeah, that's yeah. the fear. Fear is a real big... I mean, you see it now even with the COVID stuff. People are driven to, you know, potentially have quite non-logical views driven by fear. That's mm. one of the one of the things that kind of, I made some notes when I was listening to the podcast, and it was that thing of that it's actually transphobia, but they're masquerading it as fear. As fear is acceptable, we're allowed to be scared of stuff, we're allowed to be afraid of stuff. That's realistic because there's something out there, but it is, it's just what it is, and it's just masquerading as fear. I thought that was really interesting what they were saying. Um, I can't, I'm not sure who said it, but they were talking about this moral panic, and you know, one of them said, Oh, you know, kind of quoting, Oh, it's too expensive, why do we have to accommodate these people? And again. I thought that was so kind of poignant. Like it's the same thing that would have been said about disabled people are accessible toilets 20 years ago. Um, and that's where that intersection comes in again. Like you don't want someone to use the men. <laughs> you don't want someone to use the ladies. You just don't want them there. That's what it is. You don't want any space that is usable for them. 
And that's what it really made. That's I know you talked about being angry, Fiona. That's made me angry. It's not like, oh, well, it's safety or da da da. They're not welcome. Mm. It's very much an othering, right? And I mean, accessible bathrooms and disabled toilets are, are exactly that othering. So um, even though we're complaining about the the gendered nature of toilets, equally then when it comes to a person with a disability, all of a sudden they're genderless, right? In the eyes of public buildings. And it's just a one universal bathroom. So, you know, again, yeah, why isn't that? Why isn't there, if gender division is so important, why isn't it then in, in all spaces? But you know, there is that line at some point in the podcast about how, you know, we're not necessarily saying to de-gender spaces or something like that, because gender can be very, you know, rich in terms of aspects of people's identity. But then it's a like, I think that's a really horrible thing that lumping everyone in together, you know, that that isn't in yet the kind of mainstream thing. I well, that was interesting because um, it was brought in a little bit in the end where they talked about the, um, the door signs. Mm-hmm. And it was like man woman alien or whatever or like you know it's like well hang on lads we're not talking aliens here we're talking regular people and I thought that was an interesting like so in a people obviously had been trying to be somewhat inclusive or somewhat creative for want of a better word but had just gone way the other way with it and not realized that they had gone the other way with it mm-hmm. and then I was like I can't tell half the time what toilets I'm supposed to go to. They got a picture on it. They got uh, like a a cowboy and a whatever. I haven't a clue what's going on and I'm trying to make a quick decision, you know. So I'm only happy (laughs) if it's like one, you know, like a small restaurant. You know, there's just one toilet. One toilet. Like they don't have space for a men's, women's disabled. They have one accessible toilet. That's a toilet for everyone. I'm delighted. We used to have it. There's usually a Mexican restaurant in Leicester that used to open up about 11 o'clock at night and run till about five in the morning. So you can tell the state of all of us when we were in there. And they didn't have, no, I think they had like, um, it was like senors and senoritas on the door. But by the time everybody got to the restaurant, nobody could remember enough Spanish to even work out. <laughs> so basically it was two, like right back in the sort of early 90s, two completely gender neutral toilets because nobody could ever work out what the signage was and you just needed to go to the loo. Festivals, everything goes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure my balance. Yeah, no one takes any notice today. Even if they have a sign on them, it's like, it's a single cubicle. Why does it need a blooming sign? Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that does speak to how entrenched it is, though, because most of the places I've been with portaloos, they're they've got signs on them and there's a massive long queue for the women's and there's like a handful of women sneaking into the men's that are completely empty but there they are it's a portaloo someone just happened to stick a sign on the front of it but (laughs) but i think that we might be underestimating the um extent to which it's ingrained in society i mean even if you take out the people who are transphobic and dress it up as uh, you know feminism and that kind of stuff just in my kids primary school they still had a little picture of a unicorn and a little picture of a soldier on the meds fridge with whose meds were in it and you know it's it's so in there it's so I just have this horrible horrible depressed feeling that it's more difficult than we would like it to be yeah it's not intentionally transphobic is it like I think some people are don't get me wrong but I think well people just blurt out oh you're in the wrong toilet 
but I don't think they've well there probably are some people that intentionally mean it in a horrible way but some people probably just thought they muddled up the signs and were trying to be helpful yeah, yeah. I think probably if anybody said that, I, I would imagine ninety-nine percent of people would just be like, it, "It's like almost like a social convention clicks into place." Does anybody want to choose the women's toilets because the queue is always ten miles long? Yeah, even in the cinema or anything, it's not just a nightclub where and there's it's always long in a nightclub or a gig. But like even just anywhere, like yeah, like in a cinema, why does it have to be like the ladies' toilets and the men's toilets? Because there's always a really long queue in the ladies. In the shopping centres, in in everywhere, isn't there? I think Kate's made a great point that I think we'd we'd be being naive to think it's easy to change because I think there is a host of people that are very transphobic. I saw a tweet today that was about just using gender neutral language from something in the NHS and some of the replies underneath it were were horrific. But I also think there's just this utter groundswell of, like for most people, they've never ever even thought about it. It's just a given that you rock up in a public space and there's a men's toilets and a ladies toilets and what's the problem um we like we like a sign we like a sign and a direction we like a cue we we like to you know form an orderly know where we should be know what our and if there's a sign there we like to follow it Um, i feel like we belong and i i think for many people that helps that but it's just that it doesn't for so many others that's the problem it is, as Niall said, it's it's othering. It's like, well, you belong in this society and, hey, you don't. Yeah. That's, that's horrible. I have to say, I have to say, it's kind of, it's been really interesting talking to uh, the my young people because after the last podcast group, I was saying what the podcast we were listening to were and they were really impressed that people of our age would be interested in that kind of thing. Good for us for educating ourselves because, frankly, we're all shocking, apparently. But their attitudes and their approach to situations is so different to the one I grew up with. Their acceptance, their lack of recognition for, you know, their sort of acceptance of individuality and of whatever, however a person chooses to identify being their business, nobody else's, what can I do to support you, is really inspiring, actually. And I think I've learned a lot over COVID with them being around me a lot more and, and kind of they constantly challenge me and pull me up on stuff so there is that bit of I think change doesn't just take action now but change is like a slow burn and I think things have been changing and evolving in the younger generations that mean that it can then pick up a pace totally I think if I listen to like my eldest is in college age and I listen to their group and her tales of that and like even my kids younger than that as well, there's just so much acceptance and almost that it's irrelevant yeah. without it being irrelevant because it's it kind of comes back to you can't you can't pretend it's not happening because that's like being colorblind and actually that's not helpful because that's not recognition of the challenge and the trauma that's being enacted on those populations. But it is about it being irrelevant in the sense of like what does it matter everyone's yeah. human like what's the big deal yeah 
Yeah, it's probably one of the biggest ripples we can have, I suppose. We can we can ripple out at work potentially or with our mates, but actually if you ripple with your children. It is, it's really inspiring to listen to them. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed our chat. For next time, we'll be listening to OT for Life's 100 episodes. The good, the bad, and, um, you know, the ugly. Where Sarah and Brock, two of our favourite podcasters, talk about having released 100 episodes. Have a listen, and then come back and see what we thought.